what is the Fiasco Theater? So Fiasco Theater is an acting ensemble and theater company that was formed sort of informally in 2007 and more formally in 2009 by uh, several graduates from the Brown Trinity MFA drama programs, which was started by Oscar Eustace and several people from Trinity Rep and Brown University uh, in 2002. So our first graduating class was in 05. And then as we started to get to New York and talk about the things that we had learned uh, that were a combination of Trinity's old aesthetics and the stuff that we had worked on in graduate school and plays we had done ourselves together, we realized we had a kind of a way of working that we wanted to test out. And we were also all interested in teaching. So, we, so Fiasco has two arms. You know, One is the shows that we create and the other is the training that we offer. That's what it arose out of, was a desire to kind of test out our ideas about training actors and fill in some gaps that we felt were missing in terms of what actors learn, especially about classical theater, and also to create shows with a certain kind of aesthetic that we also felt wasn't readily uh, present in New York, which was a surprise to us, because this was how we had been working on plays for the last several years. Well, let's talk about that aesthetic. What is the aesthetic that Fiasco espouses? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. What I, what I do know is that there are several things that we care about a lot. One is that we're all actors, right? So we believe that actors make plays happen and that anything else that isn't people on stage doing the play should be in support of the people on stage doing the play. So we don't solve questions about how we want to do these plays by locating ideas in some sort of geopolitical reality or in sort of handing all the responsibility for making events happen off to the designers or things like that. We really sort of say, okay, the actors are going to make everything that happens in this play happen. So that's one thing. It's actor, it's plays so that actors can take full responsibility for making the whole play happen. What that leads to is what would be called a kind of minimalism or a fairly simple aesthetic because, and that doesn't mean that we don't value the work of designers. We have designers who are brilliant. But they understand that you know what we care about is storytelling. Right. So that's kind of that's the kind of main aspect of the of the aesthetics. It is uh, the acting is vigorous. You know, we try to make physical things happen. Uh, we take responsibility for physical events that are sometimes not in the play that we use as kind of storytelling stuff. I'm in charge of a lot of the music that Fiasco does, so we use music as a kind of thing that functions. But again, these are all things that people do. People make music and people move their bodies through space. And so anything that actors can do, we try to use to tell the story. The other, another aspect of our aesthetic is that we want everyone who's in the play to have something good to work on, because we're all friends. So even though Noah Brody and Jesse Austrian and I are the co-artistic directors of Fiasco and we make all the decisions, but we have three additional actors who make up our primary acting ensemble, plus an extended family of people who we work with and are interested in working with, but we never want to ask anyone to be in a play if they're not going to actually have an experience that's worth doing. So that often means a lot of doubling and tripling, or in the case of Paul Coffey and Cymbeline, quadrupling of, of significant chunks of the play so that no one is running downstairs to do the crossword when they're not on stage. You know, everyone is kind of invested in almost every scene of the play in some way. So set the scene for us, if you could, um, yeah. as well as you can in this medium. When, when I walk into the theater and see a fiasco show... What do I see on stage? Well, the first thing you might see is us. Uh, we like to hang out before the show. This was something that, you know, we did Cymbeline for the first time at the Access Theater in the fall of 2009, which was totally self-produced. And that was produced in what basically was a large rehearsal room, you know, white walls, wooden floor with some lighting trees. Well, I think we had like six or eight instruments, something like that. So there was no way to di differentiate the space that we were in from the space that the risers that <laughs> you could have found in your college theater department with folding chairs on them were from the stage, you know? And that's good for us. 
the other aspect of this aesthetic is that we, we tend to say to the audience, hello, we're going to do this play now. I hope you enjoy it, and we need you to play along. You know, so we, what you might see is us. You'll probably see some instruments. You might see your fellow audience members. <laughs> and probably not much else. And uh, in the case of Cymbeline, you see a fantastic... Oh, yeah. You see a fantastic trunk. Yeah. So this is how we build our shows. Basically, we sit down and we say, okay, these are the plays we're interested in. And usually we get interested in them because of the acting opportunities that they provide for us. I mean, that's, it's a kind of, as my old acting teacher used to say, they're all vanity projects. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, are, you, you're looking for opportunities to do things that you want to do. These are roles that I'm fairly positive none of us would ever have been cast in in a major production. We're looking for acting opportunities for ourselves. And then what we try to do is we say, what, what does Shakespeare call for in this play? What do we need? to tell this story. And then we try to begin there, and then we sort of say, well, what, what else might that thing be able to do? So as we started talking about Cymbeline, you know, the famous scene from Cymbeline, if there is one, is this trunk scene where Yakimo hides in a trunk in Imogen's bedroom. We sort of said, well, we've, we've got to have a trunk of some kind. And of course, all these decisions are arbitrary, right? I mean, you could say, well, we've got to have a Roman army, too. I mean, right? you, can, you, can just, you can sort of pick things, but anyway. Trunk was exciting. We said, well, what if we built the whole show around the trunk because we're an our aesthetics are that of a kind of itinerant company, and maybe we open up the trunk and we make the whole show happen like a trunk show. Everything kind of comes out of here that we might need. What might we want that trunk to do? We started brainstorming ideas about that, and then we worked with a fellow actor who's also a master carpenter who went to our program named Jacques Roy, and we worked with Jacques to design and have him design and build for us this kind of magic box, which again works with Cymbeline because so much of the content of the play is about illusion, deception, things not being what they seem. So any conceptual choice that we make is always related to something that's actually engendered by the play. We're not putting something we don't believe, we're putting something on top of the text and kind of hoping that some sort of geopolitical reality will sift out of that, that the audience will go, oh, that's why this is relevant. But we're actually sort of saying, what is here that is of interest on a theatrical level, on a kind of intellectual conceptual level, and how can we make our conceptual choices line up with that? And then, of course, the doubling, the actor doubling, relates to that as well. So every choice that we made in Cymbeline, we tried to root on some level in what we believed the, uh, the content of the play to be about. What's your relationship to the audience? Well, I hope it's very, very strong and joyful and, and intimate. You know, we, if you come to see a fiasco show, we'll probably be saying hello out on stage a little bit while we check our props and get warmed up. It was very, it's very important to us not to be performing as if we were actors getting ready to do a show, which is sometimes something that can happen, right? Like the concept is this group of actors arrives in this space and then starts doing this thing, but somehow it's a group of actors other than the ones that are actually there. So we try to be our actual selves, say to the audience, we're here with you. Try to, you have to teach the audience how to watch the play. So that's, this is one way that we do that. Um, you know, another way is we tend to open a lot of our shows with some kind of welcoming event, you know, a song or something, or something that kind of says, seriously, it's okay. <laughs> we can all admit that we're here together. This is positive. You know, we're not going to force you to involve yourselves in the play in some kind of way that you don't want, but we are doing it for you. So our relationship to the audience is one of, of great love and joy. You know, we really like doing plays for the audience. When we come up with these things, we want to do stuff that's of interest to us, but we want, it has to be offered to the crowd in some kind of a way that, that gets us excited. I remember seeing a um, Trinity production of Twelfth Night, which imitates a lot of what you're saying. Directed by Dick Jenkins. Yep. Richard, of the Richard Jenkins, who's now a film star. Yep. And that's the one where Viola and Sebastian came out at the beginning, and somebody held a sign up behind them that said, these two people look exactly the same. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, we've inherited a lot of, obviously we weren't 
at Trinity in the, in the early 90s when, when Dick was running it, and we weren't there in the 70s and 60s and 70s days and, and 80s when Adrian Hall was running it. But a lot of the people who were working closely with those people as actors and as students became our teachers. So a lot of that Trinity aesthetic has found its way into our work. And I do think that we've taken a lot of those values and we've put our own spin on them. I'd like you to, this is a good segue, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your influences. As a, as a collective. Well, let's, let's, let's speak personally. Well, a lot of my influences are the people who I worked closely with um, when I was a student. Um, I'm always happy to name those names because they're people that a lot of people don't know. So Brian McElhaney was the head of our acting program. He's also a resident director at Trinity. So he was, the, he was our primary acting teacher, and so we learned a lot of our sort of approaches to teaching and making events happen in the room and stuff like that from him. Uh, Amanda Daynert, who Garrett and I got to work with together uh, as actors. Amanda Daynert, uh, who was at Trinity while we were there, was a teacher of directing and also found her own way to kind of use these aesthetics in an interesting epic theater kind of way. Uh, many of the actors at Trinity, I mean, there's too many to name in some ways, but some of the great ones that come to mind are Bill Domkeller, who's now retired. Stephen Thorne, who's one of the leading company members now. Is, a real inspiration to me. Um, so, you know, a lot of those influences came from the kind of uh, apprentice, the old school kind of theatrical apprenticing in the provinces, so to speak. And then now a lot of our influences come sideways. That's the nice thing about being a professional as opposed to being a student is a lot of your inspiration comes from the people you actually are, interact with day to day. So, you know, those are people like Noah and Jesse and Andy and Paul and Emily, the other members of our company. And because we got to work with Cicely Berry, the voice director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, on Cymbeline, spent a couple weeks with us. She's now a, a real inspiration. Mind-blowing stuff was, was offered to us from her. And Mark Rylance and David Hyde Pierce. There's lots of people who I haven't gotten to work with, but whose, whose work I admire from, as an audience member. Do you have a favorite bit of advice about acting Shakespeare that you've received from mm. a castmate? Well, everyone has different challenges. You know, so part of what's going on in Fiasco now is that we've known each other for long enough that we can actually offer each other things that are based on essentially saying to that person, we sometimes say that box has been checked, you know, because everyone tends to worry about the stuff that they're best at, right? This is something you realize when you're a teacher. And, uh, and also, if you're an aware student, you kind of, you know, so somebody like me uh, might be often obsessing about, like, am I being heard? And am I being clear, you know? Well, those are usually the things that the Ben Steinfeld box will take care of. The things I need to be putting my attention on in rehearsal are, am I allowing this experience in? Am I making sure that I'm not overproducing vocally or technically for the sake of clarity or something, yeah? Other people need to make sure that they're engaging vigorously enough with the text and not kind of mushing their way through it, right? So we can kind of help each other towards the things that we need to be working on. In terms of what I think is most important about acting Shakespeare is that you've got to figure out a way that the things that you say and the things that you experience are, are in lockstep with each other. The toughest thing about Shakespeare is when an actor's approach makes what they say get out of phase with what's going on in the room or what the experience is. And so those are the things that we try to help each other do. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.